0: There's a thought I keep having and maybe you've had it too. The main question they'll ask about our age is how did everything get so stupid so fast? You can look at our economics, economies and see inflation ripping through them. But there's another kind of inflation at work too. In human folly, and all its flavors, from ignorance to malice to bad faith and beyond. It's pulsating through our societies, and the lunatics, it seems, are seizing control of them faster and faster. Does it feel a little bit like, what's the phrase I'm looking for? The bonfire of vanities at the end of a civilization out there today, Welcome to the acceleration of the age of stupid. Think back again just a decade and remember how you felt. How do you feel now in comparison? If indicators are any bet, you feel not just worse, but astonishingly worse. People are so pessimistic that it's hard to even do it justice in words. 80% of people and this finding holds true across societies, basically think there's not going to be a future for them or their kids. A decade ago, societies might not all have been shiny examples of happiness, but they weren't exactly biting their nails to keep from screaming in despair either. And all that's taken a knock-on effect on social cohesion Meaning trust and ties, which are collapsing at lightning speed. If you're feeling the way I'm do, I, uh, the way I do, I'm here to tell you it's real. The stupid is burning us out, my friends, getting abysmally worse, and it's something you should know and reflect on. Just think back to a decade ago, so you retain your sanity, courage, grace. And truth. That's hard enough. And the less stupid you have to wade through, here's a not so secret the better chance you have. This is from an internet article called The Acceleration of the Age of the Idiot by Umar Haik, who's the son of a Pakistani economist, graduated from McGill with a degree in neuroscience, and got an MBA from the London Business School. If you want to read the whole article, if you dare to read the whole article, just let me know and I'll send you the link. The Acceleration of the Age of the Idiot. That's one of the reasons why I have chosen to work with Proverbs this summer. Proverbs is a book that speaks about wisdom. It reflects the struggle of the people of Israel to find identity in a time of cultural crisis, when both the monarchy, that is the government, the government at that time was a monarchy, and the priesthood, and to translate that in our time is the church or religion, were no longer sources of authority and stability. Can't trust the government, can't trust the church, can't trust all kinds of organizations in our society anymore. We're in the age of stupid, and what do we do? And Proverbs offers us what's known in in the ancient Near East times as wisdom or wisdom literature. Wisdom literature consists of, of of pithy sayings by sages and wise people that offer kind of little bits. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the term, the haiku, the really short little poems, something like that. Just short little bits of wisdom um, that, that are passed on verbally. It's only later that they're written down. So they're just things that people say to each other in order to keep their courage up and to keep moving and encourage each other to move past and through the age of stupid into some kind of stability, some kind of wisdom. There are um, (coughs) four books, three books in our Old Testament that are called uh, wisdom literature. They're the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And then there's a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, which is not in our Protestant uh, Bibles. But if you have a Bible with the Apocryphal books in it, that book will be in there. And this wisdom, particularly of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, interestingly enough, uh, comes from um, is a is a is a custom, a way of of doing life together, but also in its wisdom itself that's developed and actually borrowed from its Near Eastern neighbors. Well, it's interesting that that Proverbs, whereas a lot of the Old Testament tells Israel, stay away from your neighbors, in this area of wisdom literature and Proverbs, Israel borrowed quite heavily from their neighbors, both in the form and in the content. The book of Proverbs, as we have it in our Bible today, assumed its final form in about 500 years before Christ, uh, after Israel had returned or was involved in the exile to Babylon. And Proverbs is rooted in two different kinds of crises. I had never known this before, but it's rather interesting. Proverbs is generally divided up into three sections. There's chapters 1 to 9, and then there's chapters 10 to 29, and then there's chapters 30 and 31. And it's thought that chapters 10 to 29 were, were again, not written down, but the Proverbs in chapters 10 to 29 occurred during the time of Solomon. Solomon did not write all of the Proverbs. Uh, We don't know how many of them he wrote, but he certainly did not write all of them. But these chapters 10 to 29 arose in the time of King Solomon. And although you tend to think of Solomon as a king of peace and wealth and stability, it was really a time of crisis because Solomon turned into a very exacting king. He taxed the heck out of his people and he made them work. His palace, his government, needed enormous amounts of food and horses and chariots and wood and stone and everything for building. It was just just an enormous burden on the people. If you remember the Old Testament story, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took the throne, and the first thing that happened is The people of Israel came to Rehoboam and said, you have to relieve this burden on us. We can't take it. And when he did that, the kingdom, when he refused to do that, the kingdom split. So again, we think of Solomon as this great, wonderful, wise guy. And he was to a certain extent. But during his reign, there was this crisis of monarchy. What kind of a king do we have here? And so these proverbs were used to keep people going. And um, it's thought that the first nine chapters and the last two, two chapters are found in the context of the exile. You remember that the kingdom of Judah, quite a few years after Solomon, was destroyed by the Babylonians. The people were taken into exile for 70 years. And the Proverbs were used at that time. We need to establish our identity as Jewish people and as the people of God. So understanding that these proverbs were written in times of crisis to me adds a dimension to them. They're designed to help us get through the age of stupid. And just one other comment. Um, well, a couple other comments, actually. Um, this is a little, little side thing, a little bit, a little bit for the nerds. But it's interesting that the first uh, chapters 1 to 9, the first section and the last section chapters, uh, particularly chapter 31, stand out because the prominence of, wi- of the prominence of women. In the first nine chapters, wisdom is talked about a lot, and wisdom is always referred to as lady wisdom. There's this feminine aspect to it. And in chapter 31 of Proverbs, there are two women, the mother of King Lemuel and then the valorous women, woman of, of Proverbs 31, which you've probably heard of. So this, this book is bookended with this focus on women and their important place in the, in the society uh, of Israel at that time. So these Proverbs were designed to keep Israel together during times of crisis and to affirm essential values, the values of social and legal justice, loyalty between parents and children, husbands and wives and friends, diligence in work, honorable poverty, and above all, the fear of the Lord. How can we stay together in a time of crisis, in the age of stupid? And Ellen Davis says this, this is a book for unexceptional people trying to live wisely and faithfully in the generally undramatic circumstances of daily life on the days when water does not pour from rocks and angels do not come to lunch. How do we keep going in the everyday life in which we live? That's what Proverbs is about. How do we keep our sanity? How do we keep our community in the age of stupid? Let's read together Proverbs 1, 1 to 6. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And again, we've already noted that he did not write all the Proverbs. This is just the the superscript that's above the book. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insights, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise. And their riddles. Just a comment on this word instruction, to know wisdom and instruction. It occurs, I believe, three times in these verses. And the actual Hebrew word that's translated instruction here is the word discipline. And Ellen Davis comments it's telling that modern translations avoid the word discipline which for us evokes pictures of grim-faced teachers rapping knuckles. Yet for the sages, discipline is an entirely positive, positive concept. In order to obtain this wisdom, in order to survive as a person and as a community in the age of stupid, in the time of crisis, you're going to have to work at it. It doesn't just happen. It requires discipline? What's the goal of the acquisition of wisdom to know wisdom and instruction? What's the goal of it? Or what's in it for me? And um, both of the commentaries uh, that, I've used, that I'm that i using mainly, one is Ellen, Ellen Davis and the other is Amy Plantinga Powell. Point out that Proverbs is not primarily focused on personal success, personal professional advancement, or just knowledge. In other words, if we read Proverbs with the idea of here's some wise, pithy sayings that will help me get ahead, help me make the best of my life, help me become a success, we're missing the real point. And here's the real point. It's in uh, verse three of chapter one. We'll we'll just project that verse just so you can see it again. To receive. uh, Isn't there just chapter verse three there? Yeah, there we go. To receive instruction in I better better read it from here. To receive instruction in wise dealing in, and listen to this, righteousness, justice, and equity. What are we interested in as we read Proverbs? Righteousness, justice, and equity. Not my personal success. Not that I get what I need. Not that I can reach my own goals, but that around me and around us as the community, again, the community in crisis, the community in the age of stupid, Proverbs drives us, is designed to drive us toward a community, toward a society of righteousness, justice, and equity. Another quote from Ellen Davis Israel was not interested in any form of knowledge that is abstracted from the concrete problem of how we may live in kindness and fidelity with our neighbors, live humbly and faithfully in the presence of God. The individualism of Western society and the individualism of the theology of the church has taught us to read Proverbs as my personal stepping stones to success and has largely missed the point. You can keep that same quote up there, Eric. Thank you. The one just back. Thanks. Israel was not interested in any form of knowledge that is abstracted from the concrete problem of how we may live in kindness and fidelity with our neighbors and I would add with the creation. Unless proverbs is driving us horizontally. We have grown up and been taught to think that God is up there and he demands things of us and proverbs help us meet his demands. It's not it. God is saying to us here's here's a way you can live that will produce righteousness, justice, and equity, because that's the way I created things to be, and that's the restoration that is in the process of happening. And then we go on with more Dave quote from Davis. This is worth our pondering, because we, more than any previous generation, are witnessing the evil effects of perverted knowledge, knowledge not essentially connected to goodness, We are seeing these effects manifested probably for the first time in human history on a global scale. No other generation has been so successful at using its technological knowledge in order to manipulate the world and satisfy its own appetites. The ecological crisis is essentially a crisis of knowledge run amok. Through us, Powerful, abstract human knowledge is operating on the world, changing it in fundamental ways. We are doing, it seems, whatever we know how to do, yet our knowledge is paradoxically uninformed. We're filled with knowledge. We can do almost anything we want to do. And we're ending up in the age of stupid Because we don't know the wisdom that produces righteousness, justice, and equity. And where is that rooted, that wisdom? A verse that I'm sure all of you know. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Of knowledge. Amy Planting a Pow says this about this verse The entire wisdom of Proverbs is thus couched in a worldview that acknowledges the sovereignty of the Holy One and the dependence and limitations, both cognitive and moral, of human beings. The dependence and limitations, both in knowledge and in morality, of human beings. Acquiring wisdom is not a human self-help project, but a creaturely response to the fearsome, gracious, and wise presence of God. Acquiring wisdom is not a human self-help project. It's not about that I can get the tips I need to get ahead. It's a creaturely response. It recognizes that we are creatures, that we are limited, that we are dependent to the fearsome, gracious, and wise presence of God. So Proverbs is driving us to. Rooted in in our dependence upon God, Focused on the community around us. How can we a people be a people that's characterized by righteousness, by justice, and by equity? And one of the things that I think is not um, appropriate with Proverbs is to, with every Proverb that you read, try to connect that directly to Jesus Christ. On the other hand, of course, as we've done over this last year, looking through the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ is God come among us. And if we want to know what wise living looks like, then we look at Jesus. And the apostle Paul says that very clearly in his first letter to the Corinthians chapter 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, and here it comes, the power of God, and the what the wisdom of god if you want to know what the wisdom that's talked about in proverbs looks like in the in the hands and feet of a person of a human being in flesh incarnate then look at jesus again as we've been doing over the last months full of grace and truth full of righteousness justice and equity beginning the work Starting the work in his life, death, resurrection, burial, resurrection, and ascension of restoring all things to himself and moving us perhaps out of the age of stupid into an age of wisdom and into an age of harmony and into an age where we are paying attention to each other and to the creation. In which God has placed us. I ran across a poem this week. Don't project it yet. I ran across a poem this week. It's called The Sycamore's Prayers. I'm not sure who wrote it. I think Brian Zahn did, but I'm not 100% sure of that. But I'd like to close with this poem because it, I think, is full of wisdom. And it shows us the interaction between man and, be- and nature and how we can find our place in this great world which God has created and in which he's placed us. The sycamore's prayers. The enormous sycamore is older than internal combustion. Quieter, too. I call it my sycamore tree, which is funny Because it more rightly calls me its human being. I've seen it get sick and I've seen it get well. It's a tough old tree. Once in an ice storm, it impaled the ground with a spear. Zeus couldn't have done it better. It's not a tree to be trifled with. It watched Missouri hunt deer. Before there were houses here, now it watches me read and write books. The Missouri were more interesting. For two decades, it stood guard while I thought and thought and thought and found a better way to think about God. And the tree thinks I'm not as daft as when we first met. We hung a porch swing from its mightiest bough. Sycamore doesn't mind. It's my favorite pla- place to pray. I think my prayers helped heal it once. And the sycamore's prayers have healed me more than once. As we come today to the table of the Lord, we come to Christ, the wisdom of God, full of grace and truth, bringing righteousness justice, and equity, and calling us to a wisdom that will help us at least perhaps survive the age of stupid, and maybe even turn it around, and maybe even do something in this age that will bless and benefit the whole world. And we're not going to be able to do that if we're not coming to and being energized by and fed with the wisdom of God himself, Jesus Christ. So we come to this table. We confess our own tendency towards independence. We confess our own tendency to do it our way. We confess our own tendency toward folly. We confess our own tendency to be focused on ourselves. What about me? What's in it for me? And we meet Christ at this table and we ask him to turn us around. To turn us from stupid to wise. And not just us as individuals but us as a community. So you're welcome to this table. If that's what your heart's desire is, to make that shift. I invite you to a moment of silent prayer. Say to God what you need to say to him as you prepare to come to this table.